Our Old Testament reading is the 34th Psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some of you may know, uh, and I think do know, that uh, the events in Nashville touched uh, our family. Uh, our son, Caleb, our oldest son, works at Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church and was there when the shooting occurred. And we're grateful, of course, uh, that the Lord uh, was uh, merciful and protected him. He didn't actually know what was going on until he was outside. Uh, there was a fire alarm that went off. He assumed that this was a fire drill for the kids in the school, and he just kept working in the sanctuary. It's a rather large uh, campus, so it's easy to understand how all sorts of things could be going on, and people wouldn't be aware of what was going on someplace else in the building. But um, he texted one of the pastoral staff, and the pastor uh, just told him, get out. So he didn't actually learn about what was going on until he was out in the parking lot. At that point, he wished he could have, could have done something, but there was really nothing to do. You know, the thing uh, I think is worth keeping in mind, and this is something that our son told us, is that they did everything right and six people still died. We try to foresee every eventuality. We try to prepare for every hardship, every, everything that could, that could go wrong. But uh, even when you do everything right, things can go wrong. The three children who uh, were killed were locked out of their rooms because they had been in the hallway when the lockdown was uh, instituted. So they were just at her, the mercy of the shooter at that point. The man who was killed, the, the janitor, was just doing his job near the uh, glass doors of the building. Uh, the shooter shot the windows out and killed him. So, you know, it was just one of those things where you look back on it and say, thank God more were, were, weren't lost. 
but at the same time, they did everything right. Ultimately, we have to trust in the Lord. Uh, I, of course, they're um, grieving there at that church. The uh, funeral for the daughter of the pastor was yesterday, and we actually got to see part of it. I'm not sure if it will be available online. It's uh, something that was intended only for people who were connected to the, to the church uh, when it was conducted. But anyway, um, so uh, Marla and I are grateful that our son was spared. Obviously, that means that our... Well, another wrinkle to this, our daughter-in-law, uh, Whitney, had intended to take uh, our granddaughter, uh, Elowen, to fly a kite on the grounds that morning and decided to take uh, the, her someplace else instead. So we're grateful for that little thing because she could have been there when it all happened. But anyway, thank you for your thoughts and prayers for uh, our uh, extended family, uh, our children. And, and uh, keep praying for the church because they have a, a great deal to, to, uh, to do if they're going to be where they want to be uh, in, in terms of ministering in that community on an ongoing basis going forward. Here we're told in the 34th Psalm that the psalmist, David, seeks the Lord. We're told this in verses uh, 1 through 4 and then 4 through 7. Here we see in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me out of all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. One of the things that I think that uh, you can take away from this is if you haven't found the Lord, it is largely because you haven't sought him. You don't find what you're not looking for. Now, sometimes, of course, the Lord can intrude, introduce himself to you in a way that's unde- you know, hard to resist, as we see with the Apostle Paul. But uh, here we're told that we should seek the Lord. Um, and, but if you're not looking for the Lord, then uh, you are not likely to find. But if you don't feel it, what if you don't feel the need for the Lord in your life? What is that supposed to feel like anyway? Um, I think that there's a sense in which we have a kind of idea in mind that there's some kind of, you know, strong compulsion that uh, kind of takes over and we just uh, have this appetite for God that can only be satisfied by God. And we know that that's what we're looking for. But is that really the case? Here, the, the word seek, the word seek is an interesting word. We're encouraged to seek. The English word seek comes from the Indo-European uh, for scent. And the image is sort of the, the, the behavior of a dog who's kind of on the scent. Maybe you've had the joy of almost having your arm sort of, you know, taken out of socket by a large dog who's caught a scent when you're walking him around. My wife had that experience, and she doesn't look back on it very fondly. <laughs> we had a big lab that just liked to drag her around. But how much effort should we uh, exercise in this whole matter in terms of seeking the Lord? Well, we're told in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, that uh, we will find the Lord when we seek him with all our hearts. In other words, this isn't something for the half-hearted. This is something that is for some, uh, someone who, or this is intended to be uh, something we throw ourselves into, like a dog on the scent. Now, why, do, why don't some people seek? 
Why don't we just all seek? Why is it that some people seek and other people don't seek? I think uh, largely because a lot of folks don't know they're in trouble. When I was a kid walking to school, I went to a tough school in St. Louis, I would pray on my way to school and I'd bargain with God. I would say, oh God, get me through this day and I will live for you my whole life. And then I'd get through the day and I'd forget about all the promises I made. But I knew that I was in trouble because I would get into fights a lot and there was a kind of a, a sort of a, a kind of a, a culture of youth violence that I was involved in. Uh, so it was inescapable that, uh, you know, there is a problem and I need help. But I think a lot of folks don't self-identify uh, as a person in need. But we're told here that uh, this poor man, David, in verse 6, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So this man self-identified as poor. He wasn't into the self-esteem cult, in other words. He didn't talk, you know, happy talk and uh, self-talk and you know, up talk uh, with regard to himself and his uh, situation. Instead, he knew himself. He knew himself to be someone in need. And I think that's really where you have to start. You have to know yourself and what you are. You have to know that you're a sinner, that you have to know that you're a dependent creature, that uh, every good thing that you enjoy in life is due to God's grace. You need to know that. You need to know that you are poor in spirit. And when you know that you're poor in spirit, you have a promise, right? In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It begins with a recognition of need. This reminds me of a, something I've referred to before, the Oracle at Delphi. Socrates was informed by uh, some friends that the Oracle at Delphi uh, said uh, that he, Socrates, was the wisest man in all Greece. And Socrates said, well, the reason I'm the wisest man in all Greece is I know that I don't know anything. <laughs> and he knew what he, that he had something that he needed to know, and he didn't know it. And that's why he was wise. And it's wise when we come to the same place in life, when we realize, hey, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull this thing off on my own. I need God's help. I am poor in spirit. This poor man cried, and God heard his cry. And we're told here that this sort of person person who seeks the Lord and recognizes his need is the person that the Lord protects. See that in verse 7? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, um, angels, uh, there are people who believe in them and then there are people who don't. Uh, I'm in the first category. I hope you're in the first category believer in angels. I think uh, sometimes people dismiss angels because, well, frankly, during the Romantic period in the Victorian area, they were presented as kind of girly. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sort of ridiculous. Um, not really terrifying visages that would give you a sense of uh, God's power at all. They're more like people who would sort of stand by you and maybe hold your hand and say, they're there. But here, we're told that the angel of the Lord has the power to uh, deliver us when we're in need. I think another thing that happens is those of us who are part of the Reformed tradition, because we believe in the sovereignty of God and that God can do anything, um, tend to, well, lose sight of the fact that God likes to do things through his instruments, like people <laughs> and angels. God uses angels. He likes working through them. 
Um, he works through you and me. He likes to use us. You know the story about William Carey, right? William Carey wanted to go to India to be a missionary to, the, to, to people there. And he went to uh, his church, and he was informed by those really hardcore, super hyper-Calvinists uh, that if God wanted to save the Indians, he could do it you know, without his help. And William said, well, that's true, but he would really like to use me. <laughs> and so he wrote a tract entitled The Salvation of the Heathen Using Means, meaning people. God uses his instruments, and some of those instruments are angels. And I came across a marvelous story just the other day. I was in Greensville, South Carolina, spending some time with a Russian friend, and he told me about his grandfather, a Baptist pastor who had spent 23 years in the gulag. For what? Preaching the gospel. And uh, during the mid-90s, when the Soviet Union was crumbling all around, uh, the authorities in the gulags were releasing people to demonstrate to folks in the West, hey, we're not such bad folks after all. Be nice to us. (laughs) And so uh, a number of uh, prisoners were brought in before the commandant at this particular gulag, and uh, Serges, that's the guy I'm thinking about, his grandfather was among them. But the Commandant had it, had it in for him, and he said, I'm going to release all these people, and I'm not going to release you. In fact, when I put my pen to this paper, you are going to be recommitted to this gulag. And Serge, uh, Serge's grandfather said, you better not do that. There's an angel standing right behind you, and if you do that, you will drop dead. Guy put the pen to the paper, signed his name, dropped dead from a heart attack right there. That's how he got out. <laughs> <laughs> the next guy who took the position of commandant said, you can go. <laughs> and uh, Serge's grandfather went back to the village that he had come from and was received gladly. He was a very popular person because of his gracious uh, ways uh, and uh, was dearly loved. In fact, he told me, Serge told me, I was jealous of my grandfather because he was my grandfather and all these other people liked him so much and, and wanted to spend time with him. I wanted my grandfather for myself. But anyway, anyway, that's what happens. Now we're told, too, that we should taste and see. We're told that we should seek the Lord, but we're also told that we should taste and see. Look there at verse 8, beginning at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting and seeing. You know what comes to mind for me when I, when I hear this is uh, Sam's Club. And, you know, the free samples. It, does that, is that what comes to mind to you? I think about this sometimes. I think, I'm just going to go from Sam's Club to Costco to all these places with the free samples, and I'll never have to buy anything. I'll just eat free samples the rest of my life. It's like, you know, uh, well, anyway, uh, now you know how I think. But we more, more or less think this is a freebie, right? This is a low-level commitment. I'm just going to get free food and enjoy it, and I'll ask for another. I'll say, I haven't made up my mind yet. Can I have some more? But is it really uh, so simple? Uh, Or is it costly? You are what you eat, after all. There's a sense in which what's implied here is by taking something of the Lord into yourself, not only will you see that the Lord is good, but you will be transformed. You will be changed and become good. Now, I think uh, it's important for us to make a distinction here between experience and tasting. We live in a world where experience is, you know, promoted and, you know, you need to have some great experiences in life if you're going to live a worthwhile life. And so there's a lot of emphasis on personal experience, even in churches. There are churches that just are designed to give you like an overwhelming experience. 
there are laser shows and you know rock bands and smoke and all kinds of stuff. I remember going to a church one time that actually had, now this was sort of a higher class experience. Uh, there was like a full orchestra on a stage, and then the orchestra, at the point where the pastor was supposed to preach, the, the stage sort of split, and the entire orchestra was like receding into the background. The pulpit emerged from the stage, and he just kind of walked out. and It was just like right there, perfectly at the right level at when he arrived. And that's pretty cool. I can say I experienced that. But is that what we're after here when we're talking about this? Uh, the Lord is not a personal experience. The Lord is a person. And he's the Lord. He's a person and he's the Lord. It makes a difference. You know, when we, say, when we talk about the Lord, I think sometimes we're almost too familiar. Yes, Jesus is our friend. But he's also the Son of God. The avenger. The one who will judge the earth. And Christ is not his last name. It's a title the anointed one, the one who is appointed to serve his heavenly father in a particular way. The Lord is who we're talking about. Taste and see that he is good. Now, one of the things, of course, that you need to employ when you taste is your mouth. You use your mouth to taste. And there's uh, some remarkable things that we can note here about how the mouth is used in the course of this uh, presentation or the course of this psalm, one of those things is the, that something comes out of the mouth and uh, something comes into the mouth. So this, by the way, should bring to mind that passage in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus says, it's not what comes out of, or not what goes into your mouth, I should say. It's not what goes into your mouth that, ma- that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And we see here that... Um, this poor man cries. He confesses that, you know, you know, something that is true about himself. I need God. I am poor. I can't uh, meet my own needs. I, I can't grant eternal life to myself. I need the Lord. I can't even deliver myself from earthly threats. I need God's help. But he also keeps his tongue from evil. Do you see that in verse 13? So that a man who desires life and wants to enjoy many days and see good keeps his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. It is to confess your need and to keep yourself from wickedness and sin. We're told here, too, in verses 15 through 18, that the Lord uh, has a, uh, his eyes uh, directed toward us. See that? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears as well, uh, toward their cry. And then this is contrasted with uh, the wicked. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. He sees us. He hears us. He's attentive. The word attention is an interesting word. It means to sort of stretch toward. So when the Lord attends to our needs, when he sees and hears, he's leaning in, assessing uh, the need that we have. Now, he's not Santa. You know, I'm not talking about he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake with the idea that he's, you know, giving, you know, gifts to his children like 
you know, Santa at Christmas and you know, rocks to Charlie Brown and coal to the wicked, although there's a sense in which Santa reflects this. It's not the communist, Chinese Communist Party's social credit system. You know, it's not, you know, Jeremy Bentham's panopticon. What we're talking about here is not a snooper that's sort of like keeping track of all the things that are going on in our lives. We're talking about the source of life himself. We're told in Acts chapter 17, when Paul's addressing the Areopagus, those philosophers, the Epicureans, the Stoics, he quotes a Stoic philosopher and he says, one of your own poets has it right. In him we live and move and have our being. He is life. If we want life, then we want him to pay attention. If we want life, we want his eye to be directed toward us. We want his ear to be attentive to our cry. We don't flee the source of life like the wicked do. And why do the wicked flee from the source of life? Because, well, their deeds are evil. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We see that there again in verse 16. Imagine the Lord being against you. Well, you don't have to imagine it. When you sin, the Lord is against you. We're in need. We're impoverished spiritually and in every important way because being itself has turned against us when we turn away from him. Now, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us in a really bad spot. We have a problem. We're already cut off. If we don't know Christ, we're already cut off. You remember that marvelous promise in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I remember the rainbow wig guy. I'm that old. Those of you who know uh, the rainbow wig guy know that you have to be a certain age to remember the rainbow wig guy. But anyway, the rainbow wig guy would attend football games and sit in the stands, and whenever there was a field goal or an extra point, he would hold up John 3.16. Great stuff. Great stuff. And hopefully people turned to John 3.16 and, and, and read that promise. But that's where people stop. You go on to John 3.17 and to 3.18, you discover that if you do not believe in him, Christ, that you are condemned already. In other words, it's only insofar as you are in Christ that you enjoy eternal life. If you are not in Christ, you are cut off from the source of life, condemned already. We're born in sin. That's what this is referring to them. So what is this uh, getting at when we turn to this uh, set of uh, verses at the very end, beginning at verse 19? Uh, we're, we're told about the afflictions of the righteous. I'd like to reflect on that a little bit with you because we as Christians read this and see something that I think people who aren't Christians can't see. When we read this, well, let me read it to you. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, it's important here. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What we have here is a reference to something that we see referred to later in the book of John. 
We're told in the book of John, in the uh, 19th chapter, in verses 33 and 36, that when Christ had died upon the cross and the centurion and the Roman authorities were inspecting the bodies, they broke the legs of those who were on the crosses near Christ, but left Christ's bones unbroken because he had died already. And this, we're told, was so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. What prophecy? This one. But this isn't the only place that we see uh, this reference to unbroken bones. There is a set of other places where we see this. One of those is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Another is in Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. And another is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And what we see in those verses is this. The Paschal Lamb, the Lamb offered on the day of Passover, so that the angel of death would pass over those who were under the covering and the indication that a sacrifice had been made because of the blood that had been put on the lentils and the doorposts of the Israelites in Egypt. Because that Paschal lamb, that Passover lamb had died, those who were under the sign of that blood would be passed over and would live. And we're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's because this righteous man suffered when he should not have suffered, suffered unjustly, suffered for the sin that you and I committed, that we can enjoy eternal life and have the angel of death pass over us. The afflictions of the righteous that's being referred to here is the afflictions that have been felt by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. He died for you and me. And when he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because the Lord turned his countenance away from him and toward you and I that we enjoy the mercy of God and enjoy the salvation of God. Christ took our punishment and was raised for us. He was offered up for our sins and raised for our justification. And that's why at the end of every service, we recall this and communicate this by observing the Lord's Supper. And we'll do that in just a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how you care for us, how because Christ died for us and we are in him, we can enjoy your favor. We're grateful, Lord, that uh, we uh, have that favor. We are, a- are able to trust you to be delivered out of all of our difficulties. We know, Lord, that there are times even in the course of our lives, as we can see with the ter- terrible events that uh, occurred uh, in Nashville this past week, that uh, even though these things are true, things do happen and innocent people do suffer, and that the people who know you are not exempt from dealing with the difficulties and the evils that can be experienced in this life. Still, we have a hope that endures, and we're grateful for that. A hope of resurrection, a hope of vindication, because we have trusted in Christ. 
and ultimately as well a hope of glorification and eternity with you. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name.